I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon, a unique blend of hunting, fishing, wildlife conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle. DSC's Campfires is brought to you by DSC, Conservation, Education, and Hunter Advocacy. Hornady, Accurate, Deadly, Dependable. Trigicon, Brilliant Aiming Solutions. Taurus, Award-Winning Pistols and Revolvers. Mossberg, American Built, American Strong. Habit, Our Gear, Your Adventure. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of DSC's Campfires with me, Larry Wysoon. And I am so privileged, honored, proud to have this gentleman sitting beside me right here to be back with us. Jim Zumbo was one of the first guests that I had as we're approaching now the 200th episode of, of DSC's Campfires. And Jim, thank you so much for joining me this morning. I'm glad and to be here, buddy, always. <laughs> thank as, you. As one of the three amigos, well, you and I and Rick. By golly, it's always fun to get together. Oh gosh, it is. We, I just had Rick on on the last week, and and uh, you drove how many miles to come fish for bluegill? One thousand two hundred sixty-one <laughs> miles from Cody, Wyoming. <laughs> I think that's the. I know that's the twenty-sixth time I've heard that. So it's <laughs> a fact. Yeah, they know bluegills to speak of in Wyoming. We got lots of trout and other stuff, you know. Right. Bluegills, we ain't got them, and you got them here. So oh it, man, <laughs> we're on uh, the place as Rick mentioned last year or last week rather that uh, used to belong to his daughter Miranda, and, and then it got they sold it, but he retained lifetime use of it in terms of hunting and fishing. And graciously through his co the co-owners of this and Rick, they invited uh, Jim and me to come over and, and have a, a two or three day kind of a respite from everything else, and uh, but mainly to come fish for bluegills. But that's kind of also the underlying cause for us to get to be able to get yeah, together and just yeah, spend yeah. time together. We've tried to get together at least once a year every year, usually in Texas, but wherever <laughs> we can. Well, maybe next time we're doing some work through a uh, three white. Tell solutions that uh, on some places up here in Oklahoma now as well too. So I think we might be able to expand that, and then of course 
earlier this week while we were here, we had Jeff Johnson with us yep. as well, too. Yep. And Jeff lives over, I think, close to Ada and, and uh, came over and fished with us a little bit and spent some time, played the guitar a little bit and all those other kind of good things. And uh, he's got a really nice place over there as well, too. He says he's got bluegill. So I think next time when we come down, we're, we're going to do some bluegill pond hopping. I'd have to do that. Yep. You betcha. What is it about bluegills that you like? You know, Larry, I think well, my dad took me fishing when I was in diapers. That was a long, long time ago. <laughs> and I, I'm pretty sure a bluegill was the first fish I caught. I was about two years old or so. And I, I was raised in upstate New York. Don't hold that against me. No, 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 I'm, no, I'm no, no. I'm a damn no, Yankee. No. I know that. But <laughs> anyways, I just I just, just love those little things because I have so many memories with a barber and a worm, you know. And Oh, my gosh, And I yes. love, love, love to eat them. And oh, I, learned how to, I learned how to fillet them. Oh gosh, forty years ago, and since then, it's been just a constant, constant search for bluegills. I once drove from New York to South Carolina to fish bluegills with my buddy, but this is oh, the longest. Goodness. This is the longest odyssey I've ever had for bluegills. So anyway, that's the deal. They're just wonderful little fish. They're a family fish. Anybody can catch them, and they're they're just delicious. Well, we got usually little or no limit, a big limit or no limit. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, in Texas, unless there is a specific watershed, I doubt that we have any kind of a limit there on on bluegill, and they're so highly reproductive as well, too. So there's no chance about, you know, fishing them out of a pond or anything like that. Yeah. You were you again. You were using a bobber and a, and worms the entire time when you were here. I yep. was using little artificial spinners, and I caught a few, and we caught you a few caught little a lot. bass. You and, caught a lot, but. Uh, you're right. I, I kind of grew up in the same kind of situation. My granddad would take me. He'd come to my house, our house, where I was growing up, and we would dig worms. And our mm-hmm. earthworms back in were like a foot long. So you could get like three or four or five of them, and you could fish pretty much that entire morning right. by just sectioning yep. off kind of thing. Yep. So I kind of grew up in those kind of situations as well, too. Now, you like to also cook, and I love to eat your cooking. Well, so Thank you, sir. No, <laughs> one of the finest outdoor chefs there is oh, I and I mean that, that in every, every due respect and I think Rody agrees with us as well too yeah, so. Rody sees something out there he don't like yeah. <laughs> what's your favorite way of doing the bluegill oh golly typically I just fillet them and um, and flour them yeah and the simplest way I've learned recently is to just uh, fry them in canola oil and butter so they're nice and brown and sprinkle them with Lowry's lemon pepper I like Lowry's better than McCormick for whatever reason, and that's it. Honestly, that's that's what the way I really love it. Or you can, you can uh, shake them in uh, Louisiana fish fry or right. whatever kind of fish fry you like. But just fried up is wonderful. But recently, I catch a lot of crappies at home. Right. And I'll just scale the crappies and take off their heads and guts and fins, not the fins, leave them on, and then kind of check scour them. them. Yeah. yeah, scour them on top yeah. like a checkerboard, and fry those babies in deep oil. At first, you press them into some, uh, I like to use Italian-flavored breadcrumbs, press them on both sides. Oh, my gosh. That is so fantastic. (laughs) And that's a big Southern way. You know, a lot of Southern folks like Alabama, Arkansas, places, and and, uh, I'm sure in Texas, too, that's the way they love to do it as well. So anyways, there are so many ways. Then I make fish casseroles, and and I can fish, and I smoke smoke all my trout pretty much. So, and I pickle it. And there's all kinds of things you can do with it. So. Some of the smoked trout that you brought down, I'll have to tell you, that was some of the best smoked 
fish well, I have you. ever had. And uh, I'll be open with you. I'm not a huge smoked fish fan. Oh, well, but, oh my gosh. That was, oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, you know, what, mm. what it, brining is the secret to smoking. It doesn't matter. Well, it kind of does what kind of wood to use to make the smoke. But the brine is so important. And one day I was ice fishing around Cody and I met these strangers on the ice and one guy was retired from a um, wild game processing place and of course those guys they smoke deer hams and ducks and pheasants and and excuse me and i asked him i said do you have a would you give me a recipe for your brine because you got to have a great brine because right. you know you used to sell it he's hold on a second he goes up to his pickup truck gets out a little package of vacuum sealed fish and he said try that and i thought oh my god this is what I've been waiting for all my life because I started smoking fish in my 20s. Right. So anyway, it's a simple recipe. I'll give it to you right now if you want to know it. Two cups of brown sugar, half a cup of white sugar, and one cup of Morton's Tender Quick. Now, Tender Quick, if people say, well, what's that? Well, you go to small rural towns and everybody knows what it is. It's, a, it's basically a, a meat, cu meat sugar cure, and it's got sodium nitrate, sodium nitrate in it. So it's got... Right. Uh, it's got the, uh, um, the the elements that don't let it spoil at high temperatures. You know, like you can buy jerky in a gas station or something. Right. Like that's what it's got in it. So, anyways, that's the story of my smoke trout. So, oh, gosh, it it is <laughs> out of this world. I, I, again, I mean, I'm not a big smoke fish fan, but. Uh, I could have eaten that entire plate that you well, put out there you. and asked for more, but I also knew that we had you and you were cooking some things here, and Rick was cooking some things here. We were throwing yeah. together, and so I didn't want to totally ruin my dead cup <laughs> meal from all of that. Oh, Jim, over the years, you've hunted and fished so many different places, and of course, you were with Outdoor Life for a long, long time and a freelance writer. And now you're still continuing to write, and some of the writing that you're doing now, I really love. Well, I, thank I, I you. truly, truly, not that I didn't like all the stuff that you did previously, yeah, well. but you're right now, you're doing the the back page of Peterson's Hunting, and mm -hmm. had the privilege of having David Draper on the, on the mm -hmm. program here not too long ago and spent time with David. And I got tickled because I was going on a bear hunt that Linda Powell set up for us up in the up in Alberta, and I kind of knew he was going to be there. And so I called Jim, or sent Jim a text. And I said, tell me about this David Draper guy. And What's he look like? Here. Send me a picture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what, what we realized is I had met David years ago when I'd worked for Bass Pro with the Redhead Pro Hunting Team. And then I got to know Mike Callahan really well, mm -hmm. who was the executive vice president of Cabela's. Mm -hmm. And I started doing a bunch of Cabela store openings with with uh, with Mike. And, and of course, at that time, I think uh, David was working for Joe Ar or working with Joe Ward. Right, right. And so we had met and talked numerous times in the past and it wasn't until we got visiting there in bear camp we go humor win <laughs> yep. but a but a great guy but this is their 50th anniversary of peterson's hunting and to me one of the highlights of every issue since she started writing for him is just go to the back page and that's where i start that magazine and well, thank you. i always start with what see what jim's coming been writing from you, about. That's a huge oh, i love your stuff that's great you relate so many different stories and, and uh well that's that's the thing now i'm old enough larry that i uh, those mountains are too steep for me anymore and that's basically what i did i most of my hunts were in the rockies or in canada on horseback and wilderness areas you know but now i my balance is shot. So what I do is write about memories. Absolutely. You know, stuff, stuff that happened over the last 50, 60 years or, or more recent. But 
So um, I, I don't go on those big hunts. Although this year I drew six different tags in Wyoming for antelope, deer, and elk. And I can still buy a couple general tags. So but I've got to put meat in the freezer. But my hunts are, are it's called smart hunting. Yes. You know? Yes. The elk are in more flatlands and the lower elevations right. rather than up on top of the, the snow-capped peaks. <laughs> <laughs> Packing them out is a whole lot easier, uh -huh. as in, in some instances, I've probably almost been able to drive right where I the animal is. I want to drive right that song, got a quarter it and throw it in a pickup truck. That's what I want to do, if I can. Otherwise, have some good husky buddies with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we had, we're here, we call ourselves the Three Amigos, Jim and, and Rick and I, and we had Jeff Johnson here, and uh, who's a whole lot younger than the, oh, the, the three of us. Like and so, 40, for gosh sake. <laughs> so we had the muscle here to help us with some things as yeah. well, too. And, yeah. and Jeff, really appreciate you having been here, but also appreciate all the help that you gave us while you're here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, on the fishing side, now I know you like bluegills, and I've been able to come up and we fish for a little brook trout, which was absolutely fabulous because uh -huh. it, it, they were all about cigar-shaped and length uh -huh. and size, but just absolutely delicious. But beyond the, uh, uh, the bluegill, what's one of your other favorite fish? I have always revered pickerel back east, and a pickerel is basically a smaller northern pike, right. and which is a smaller muscalunger, those three major fish in that family. But then I got onto northern pike, and I just love those fish. They can get up to 25, 30 pounds. And, and uh, I don't think Rody likes northern pike. <laughs> I think Rody's seeing ghosts out here right now. He's been yeah. barking at something. <laughs> but my right to passage into manhood was when I was a teenager. My dad used to go to Quebec, Canada, and fish for northerns with his buddies. And uh, I used to, when I was like eight or nine, I'd cry because I couldn't go with him. Oh, know? my so gosh, yes. He'd and he'd say, when you're old enough, you'll go. So one year I might have been 14. He said, you're going to Canada with me. So holy smokes, when we caught northerns, so heck wouldn't have it. Oh, man. Since then, I just I just love Northerns. I've gone to Canada many times, and we have some. We have a big reservoir in Montana called Fort Peck. Oh yes, it's it's part of the Missouri River. It's event, and it's loaded with Northerns. And Northerns, if you're unaware, are they're they're pretty five, six, ten pounds is common, and they're they're olive green with like little bean marks on them, and they've got a snout like a crocodile and teeth like a crocodile. And they've got Y bones in them, as do pickerel and muscle. Right. And uh, there's a technique to get them out. And I never knew how until I went to Manitoba bear hunting one year, and, a, and the outfitter showed me how to do it. And since then, it's simple. And once you get those Y bones out, it's delicious. I mean, it's just, but I, they're real savage. You know, the strike is, is instant, and they fight like crazy. And just to see them with those glaring eyes and that big mouth is just exciting. So there's, that's probably my second favorite fish. So, I've had the opportunity. I've never caught what I consider a big one because usually when I've been on hunts, mm -hmm. we were so concentrating on hunts or we were doing TV stuff. So, I didn't really yeah. have the opportunity, you know, to, to take yeah. that time to fish. But I've caught some, you know, that were probably about 30 inches or oh, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I remember the, the, uh, the, the cook that we had in camp preparing them. And apparently, they knew how to take the Y bones out yep. as well, too. Yep. I knew they existed because I would ask, I said, now, how bony is this going to be? Yep. Goes, no. I've got them taken out, and it was absolutely delicious. But yeah. you're right; that strike and that fight is 
absolutely fantastic. Yep. Luke Clayton, who you and I both know, and Luke mm-hmm. and I do uh, another podcast called uh, Campfires with Luke and Larry on uh, Sporting Classics, for our first Sporting Classics, and then a weekly radio show. He just got back from the northern part of Saskatchewan, and uh, they slayed, and I mean that, not that they killed them because they released every, nearly every fish that they caught, except for the few that they were going right, to eat. Right, Because they didn't really feel like they could bring it back. Now, uh, yes. uh, to, to me, uh, one of the things I share with Jim is that for the very most part, if you catch a fish on a hook, it, it's so that we can eat it. <laughs> yeah. I got an old slogan, if you hook them, you cook them. If you hook them, you cook them. <laughs> Not and, always. Uh, I mean, I believe in catch and release at oh, some yeah. point. If it's biologically required, like we have a wild trout stream, uh, a river that comes out of Yellowstone Park that flows down the highway, and those fish, those trout are all wild, and I never, almost never fish that stream because I don't want to mess with the females that are gravid, you know. Right. But uh, no, I, I I fish for food, and I'm not embarrassed to say that. So. No, I, I do too. I, during my, of course, I grew up out in the country, and when we caught fish, we ate them, kind of thing. So I grew up in that kind of philosophy, if you will. And then going through college, I was married, and Marianne and I had a lot of times the only meals that we had for that week is whatever we could catch. Yeah. Because both yeah. of us were tied up with so many other things, so yeah. we'd run out and grab, try to go catch a bunch of fish and. That was the meal for the day and sometimes the meal for the week kind of thing. On the hunting side of things, you've hunted Africa and Botswana in the past, Mm -hmm. and and, and you've hunted, as I recall, in some of Europe as well, too, Mm -hmm. and in North America. And you were one of those people many years ago who really kind of got people interested in calling elk. Mm -hmm. How did that come about? Well... um, in about 1985, Don Laubach is a native of Montana, and uh, we used to go to Yellowstone Park, a bunch of photographers, and, and uh, take pictures of sheep and elk and mule deer in the park. And, and Rody. Uh, Don was a real smart guy. He lived in Gardner, Montana, which is at the, the northern gate of Yellowstone. It's, it borders the park, that town does. And there was elk in town all year long, and one day... Don and I were sitting in a saloon that he owned, a gardener, and he said, hey, Zumbo, you ever you ever hear of this thing? And he shows me this thing. What is it? He said, it's a cattle elk call. And now, mind you, the cattle elk call was non-existent. Yes. Non-existent. I said, what's that? He said, well, it sounds like a cow elk. I said, really? So he, I said, blow it. So he blows the thing. Everybody in the bar looks at him, but it's okay because he owned the bar, right? <laughs> right. Anyway, I said, that sounds like a cow elk. He's, and I said, so? He said, well, think about it. I said, all right, tell me about it. He said, when you hunt turkeys, you imitate a hen. You're trying to draw that tom to you. So if you imitate a cow, what do you suppose would happen? I said, I don't know. He said, well, I know. I've tried it. He said, would you try this call? And I said, absolutely. So he gave me a call, and he gave a call to a couple outfitters. And for that fall and throughout the after the season, just to test it, that thing was amazing. It imitated a cow elk. So... Of course, Outdoor Life, is, as all outdoor magazines, are always looking for tips and techniques, you know. Oh, yes, to, right. To, so you'll be a better hunter. So I told Don, I said, hey, if I can write this for Outdoor Life, that the editor will accept the story, do you have any calls made? He says, well, my wife and I have got about 100 made. We make them in our basement. I said, well, let me see if we can sell them for you. So I wrote this story, and I think the June issue of 1986 Outdoor Life, 
called El Cunning's Newest Secret. Right. I remember the article. At the bottom of the story, I put for a cow call of your own, send eleven ninety five and three dollars shipping to Don Lawbach in Gardner, Montana. Anyway, the magazine appears, and I called Don about a week later, or he called me. He said, "My God, what did you do?" I said, "What happened?" He said, "We sold nine thousand calls." Oh my gosh! And people were just waiting. Oh yeah, absolutely. It was, and I, it wasn't. But because of me, I just happened to be the lucky guy that I was buddies with Don that he gave right. me the scoop on a story. But so from that point on, you know, um, I use the call a lot, but I've been using elk calls. Gosh, 50 years ago, you had to make them out of a garden hose, put a little notch in it, you know, and a little stick piece of wood or, or else a piece of uh, a piping or something. There, right. There was one call made. It, I think it looked like it came from a, a engine of a vehicle. It was like a copper coil. Yes. And it sounded nothing like an elk. No. It was just a tinny sound. And it called them in. And it called them in. That was all there was. And then, of course, here came all the manufacturers. When Don's call came, it was called Cow Talk. When yes. that call came out, everybody jumped on it. Yep. You know, Lou, uh, Will Primos, and and uh, they all did. So now, no elk hunter that's savvy about elk hunting goes in the woods without a cow call or two or three in his pocket. So, anyways, that's kind of the calling is 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 so oh, it's incredible because you go out there in the peak of the rut and elk are bugling all over the place. You know, and as you know, you hunted a lot of elk. It's just a wonderful time to be out there. Oh, my gosh, it is. I love being out in the oak woods that time of the year. The leaves are changing somewhat. The oh, temperature is changing, and then you got a bull over here. Oh. The, the last elk hunt I did was on the Mescalero Apache Reservation, mm -hmm. and th th that's it, that's not. It's almost not even elk hunting because there are so many. There were times uh, we were staying there at the end of the gods, and uh, through a hunt that we'd sold through DSC Foundation, and I was there to to help with the hunt, but then also fortunately was able to buy a uh, non-trophy bull tag. Oh. And and uh, there was never a time we were staying. I, I slept with the doors and the windows open in, in my room because mm -hmm. I listened and I didn't sleep because all night long, <laughs> yeah, those elk were bugling right outside. Well, of course, it's, it's wonderful. The only time we didn't hear elk bugle is when you were in a vehicle driving 60 miles an hour and had the windows rolled up, yeah. you know, that you didn't hear them. So to me, that was just an absolutely a dream come true. I've, yeah. I've been fortunate. I've not hunted elk nearly as much as you have, but I've hunted elk a fair amount. But yeah. just to be around and to hear and, and of course, share yeah. hunting camp with a couple of great guys as well, too, and that thing it was out of this world good uh, mule deer we're going to talk a little bit about mule deer but then uh i want to come back some other time and, and try to, i may try to come up and visit with you a little bit you know oh, talk absolutely. a little bit more about mule deer and some absolutely. of the things that are going on up there absolutely uh, what what are your feelings about mule deer these days well, there's no question that they're in a, they're in a decline. Um, every state has has, has experienced. For example, Wyoming. Um, I won't say it because I'll be lying, but maybe 15 years ago had about 600,000 mule deer. Now right. down to about 340. Well, 340,000 mule deer is a lot of mule deer, but it's not 600,000. No. So they're definitely no. on the decrease, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, habitat loss, predators. Now we've got the wonderful wolves in Wyoming <laughs> that. We can now shoot, and you can, you, know, you can also shoot them in Idaho and Montana. The three states Thankfully. are. Then you got the diseases, C O uh, D, and and uh, blue tongue and and predators, all sorts of stuff. So um, at any rate, there there's still big bucks out there, 
if you look for them, it's not. Yeah. When I first, I got uh, I got my degree in wildlife and forestry at Utah State in 1964. That's a long time ago. And back in the, that was a banner days of the mule deer. You could go out any place, and I hunted Utah and Colorado a lot, and see a four-point buck, four-by-four. Four, right. Almost anywhere. It was unbelievable. I'm talking 28, 30-inch bucks. Yes. Everywhere. And then they went into a big decline. And that, yeah. that those days have never recovered. But there yeah. are places where you can indeed do that. And you know that as well. Yeah, so they're I still there. It's just a little. Hard. Oh yeah, you just got to hunt for them. Man. And nowadays, you know, the problem in the in the Rocky Mountain states is non-residents have to pretty much draw a tag in a lottery. And in order to help you do that, they've got preference points and bonus points. But it's it's a pain. I got buddies. Uh, well, we just had our results here about three days ago. I got buddies in North Dakota who've been trying to get an antelope tag in Wyoming as non-residents. This is their fifth year of failing. They haven't been able to get one. The same tro as a resident, I can go in Walmart and buy an elk tag or a deer tag, um, but non-residents have to draw. And the same holds true. Colorado is one of the few states where you can actually, for some units, buy one over the counter. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, it's, it and, and unfortunately, I mean, it was a good program to start with, but now there've been some. It, there's some of those places. I've got friends who are now in their twentieth year of of, of the drawing. And still have not drawn, but there there's so many people that have got that number of preference points yep. as well too. So it, it it's kind of a double edged sword in that respect. Yeah. But I had uh, in Colorado, I got in on the bottom floor when they started preference points, so I always had yes the maximum number every year, and I yes. ended up with twenty four points, twenty four years. And I finally drew the unit that I wanted up in the northwest corner of the state, unit two hundred one. And if people from Colorado are watching, I'm sorry, but everybody should know about 201. If you don't, then you're not savvy about it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it took me 24 years. Montana, I, I was putting in for more than 20 years for a sheep tag. Finally drew it. It's a matter of persistence. You it, know? it is. It really is. It is. So. That unit 201, I, I know a little bit about it. I used to take care of a ranch right above oh, Dinosaur right. National Monument I area. I remember that, yeah. And uh, at one time, when I first started messing with it, we had an unbelievable mule deer herd in there. Yes. And then the elk started showing up. And over a period yep. of time, the elk kind of didn't replace the mule deer. But the, we went through some really bad winters. And mule deer being shorter leg compared to a, a, a an elk that can has got a little bit more range in in terms of getting up and getting something to eat and all that. But yep. uh, our mule deer up there really took it on the chin, and as a result of all that, that elk population really blossomed. And oh my God, I remember seeing the first bull elk up there coming out of the Dinosaur National Monument area. There were actually four of them. And knowing now a little bit about scoring elk, the, the smallest one was probably 360. Well, and I mean, and, and two of them were huge seven oh, by sevens gosh, and yeah. just mass and tine length and, yeah. you know, main beams. And when they threw their head back, you felt like their antlers were behind their tail kind of thing. So that is, that is a great area, no doubt. Yeah. When I drew, I was bound and determined. I set up a tent by myself on a little bit of BLM land in 201, and I was going to wait until I got the biggest bull of my life, and they were there. But unfortunately, the first day I slipped on a rock and really messed up my knee, and I could barely crawl. So oh, I took Lord the next Jim. bull I saw, and he went, he, he went 320, which was fine. Oh, 320 yeah. is a great bull. Yeah, but. yeah, but still, you know, that's an area with, with monster bulls. But at any rate, uh, you know, the critters are there, and, and again, it's the drawing situation that's a pain in the neck. But... Uh, 
you got to do it. You got to get those points going. You do, Jim. We're going to have to shut this thing down. You, you get 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 back on the road. Rick's got to get back on the road. I got to get back on the road. We got yep. some cleaning up to do, and and yep. we still got a crawfish trap to go check here yep. in just a little and bit. A so trap. That's right. So you. we're going to go so. do that, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so very much. And if Jim, if somebody wants to get in touch with you with your writing, now you've got some places that you do blogs. Let's let's mention that real quick before we get out of here. Okay, I do one blog, and I do it for Caribou Gear game bags uh caribou makes a to me the best meat bags in the world they and do i write a weekly blog for them uh they can get in touch with me there or um let's see you can send me a, a email zumbo at wavecom.net and uh i'll be glad to answer it and answer any questions you might have so feel free to do so jim thank you so very much okay, we buddy. need to plan before we get away from here our next Absolutely. Joint adventure with Rick as a well. Place too. with no ticks. You forgot to mention <laughs> no. I got tick bit. This he, he got tick bit. I've never seen a tick embedded as deeply as what this tick is in Jim. We, we, so this is Doctor Wysoon. <laughs> I I found some long needle long nose pliers, needle nose pliers in my truck, and he's trying to dig that something out. <laughs> oh, I think he got about eighty percent. I got it. about eighty percent, but I've never seen one hold so on I'll, this tight I'll, or dig that deep. I'll so. go see my doc if it bothers me when I get home. I'll be home in about three days. I'm going to bumble along. So anyway. You, you'll need to do that because the Lyme disease thing is prevalent so many yeah. different places. But uh, again, Jim, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, join us right back here next week. And uh, no telling what we'll find or who we'll find to talk to. So thank you very much for joining us. And as I said, we'll see you right back here next week on DSC's Campfires. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. DSC's Campfires has also been brought to you by the Crown Bar in the Grange and Roundtop, Texas. Texas Wildlife Association, Double Nickel Taxidermy, H3 White Till Solutions, and Burnham Brothers Game Calls.